Our Father, there are uh, times when we are uh, confused by you. We are uh, puzzled by the events that we find ourselves in, and we are really uh, flummoxed sometimes by your um, apparent distance and silence. That doesn't happen all the time, but it happens sometimes. Uh, we, uh, We often put expectations on you. We have expectations in our own hearts and minds about what our lives should look like. And we also have expectations about how you should fix things that are wrong in our lives. And when you don't, it's easy for us to become angry. Sometimes it's quiet anger, sometimes it's hidden anger, but it's anger nonetheless. Sometimes we are, uh, sometimes we're disappointed in you because We don't understand why you are leaving us in such a difficult position for such a long time. We thought we would be out of it by now. And we find ourselves still in it. And we are tired of it, and we are fatigued by it, and we haven't laughed in months and months. We're overwhelmed. But we thank you that the more we walk with you and the more we study your word and find out about you, we thank you that you do all things well. Just as we had times when we were little boys where we did not understand uh, our fathers or our moms, how they were working, that we would get angry at them. Uh, Now, we find ourselves oftentimes emulating what they did in those situations. Oftentimes when we're kids, we just just don't have enough. We just don't have enough um, seasoning. We don't have emotional maturity to understand what's best. And we have very limited perspective even now as adult men. You have told us that your ways are not our ways. And we get ourselves in trouble when we expect you to act a certain way. You know what's best. You know things we have absolutely no conception of. You have your eye upon us. We are never out of your sight. You know the plans that you have for us. You have a purpose. You are very, very interested in building character in our lives. And character doesn't come through ease and affluence and an easy life. It comes through hardship. You want to conform us into the image of Christ. So, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. I pray for us tonight. Inevitably, there are some guys here who are fighting off disappointment and even bitterness towards you. 
because of where they are in life. I pray, Lord, that you would give them perspective tonight. I pray that you would enable them from their heart to trust you and to put themselves fully into your hands and in your care. Uh, the Lord is good and does good, Psalm 119.68 says. We don't always view it as good, but you take the worst things that happen in our lives. You take the worst things that others do to us, and you take the worst things that we do to ourselves and to others, and somehow, in some way, you turn it for good. It's beyond us how you can do that, but we have seen you do it, and you have promised you will do that, so we wait for it. So I ask you to encourage our hearts tonight. For the guys that are discouraged, for the guys who, overwhelmed, who are overwhelmed, they're not sure the next step. What did the psalmist say? When my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. Direct us. Give us the next step. Don't let us lose our joy. Help us, Lord, to get all in with you. Help us, Lord, to, to trust you. You are my God. In thee do I trust. We all trust in something. We all depend on someone or something. How foolish not to depend and trust in you. You've proven yourself so many times to us. Give us perspective. Give us courage. Energize us tonight. Give us strength for the battle. Give us wisdom. Restore to us the joy of our salvation if we've lost it. Give us, we ask humbly, what we need tonight. And help us to see things in a way that honors you and does not put you on the stand for cross-examination. We don't have that right. You're the judge of the earth, and you will do what's right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are working our way through uh, some material that I originally did some 25 years ago. I did a book called Point Man, first book I ever did. It was booked to men on how to be a spiritual leader. And um, just to kind of get us out of the blocks, uh, the reason I'm doing this is because when I wrote Point Man back in, I was writing it in 89, before that I did uh, my uh, doctoral research on men at Dallas Seminary, surveyed a thousand guys across the country so I could find out what the issues were and have the research. And I got a lot, I had a lot of stuff. Um, uh, if anything was clear, it was that there, without question, from a spiritual standpoint, that, that if you want to have a biblical family, that you're in a battle and you're in a war. If you're a husband and father, uh, there is an enemy who hates you. If you, hate, if, if, if you love Christ, when you come to know Christ, when Christ pulls you in, you know, we don't go after Christ. He comes after us. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus said to his disciples, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. He wants to make us into uh, men who know him, uh, men who are in relationship with him, men whose sins are forgiven, men who have confidence about the future, men who understand that uh, we are being conformed into the image of Christ. That's a long process. He wants to take us from immaturity to maturity. So he comes after us, changes our hearts. We're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. 2.1. 
to one. But he makes us alive in Ephesians 2. Uh, and then you get to 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. Faith is a gift from God. He gives it to us. Because we're dead, you can't conjure up faith. So he gives it to us. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. You can't do enough good works to earn salvation because God requires 100% perfection. Only Christ was perfect. So we trust in Christ who came. Jesus came. He was the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. Christ was without sin. We're full of sin. It's in our nature. Jesus came, gave his life for our lives. He who knew no sin became sin. And what happened was, by the sacrifice of Christ, he made it possible that the wrath of God that should have come upon us for our sin, it doesn't come upon us, it was placed on Christ. And for those of us who trust in Christ alone for salvation, it's the greatest day of our lives when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works that any man should boast, and then it goes on and says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. He crafted you. He made you. He gave you your personality. He gave you your skill set. And every guy in here has a skill set that's different from the other guys around him. Uh, there are certain things you do well. There are certain things you can't do at all. That's by God's design. But you are his workmanship. He made you tall. He made you short. He made you this color or this color. You have this family background or this family background. That's all under the sovereignty of God. None of this is accidental. There's a plan for the ages and there's a plan for you. And there's a plan for your kids and for your grandkids and your great grandkids who don't even exist yet. This is our God. This is our Lord who does all this. So once again, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not good works to earn salvation. You were given salvation in verse 8 by grace. But after we have been saved from our sin, now he's going to begin to do a work in our lives. And the grace we've received, now he's going to, the grace we've received, he's going to use that to do good works in the lives of others. And some of these works you've seen and you've been able to minister to people, and that's great. There are other works he has in mind for you, and you don't even know what they are. You don't have a clue. It could be in a completely different area of your life than you're thinking about right now. You just, don't, you just never know what he's going to do. You see? Um, but we do know this. There are certain things he's called us to as men. Uh, most men... Most, most boys will be married when they grow up. Uh, it is a godly thing for a young man to desire to be married and to have his own family. I, I can remember, uh, I didn't get married until I was uh, 27. I had a lot of women ask me to marry them, but <laughs> I just wasn't interested. Um, anyway. And I was, of, my, of my friends, I was the last one to get married. And uh, I can remember thinking, you know what? I used to say this to myself. I just want my own deal. I just want my own deal. I wanted, I wanted 
my own wife. I wanted someone to go through life with. Uh, I wanted to have kids. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to show my, uh, my son how to throw a spiral. Uh, I just, I wanted to do that stuff, what my dad did with me. See, those are, those are godly desires. Those are good desires. Um, if you are a husband and a father, you're, you're in that position because God has appointed you to that position. And it is, a, it is a very serious position. It is a position that's under attack. When I wrote Point Man 25 years ago, uh, there was a need for fathers because the family was under attack. The reason I'm going through this 25 years later is that things have not gotten better. They've gotten worse. And you know that, and I know it. Uh, I got an email from a guy this week who was at the conference in Pennsylvania I got it from him yesterday, and he mentioned the fact that uh, at this point in his life, he and his wife expected, I think they had six or seven kids, expected, you know, everybody's moved on, expected the empty nest, but he's got um, three grandchildren he's raising, as many of you guys are. See, this wasn't happening 30 years ago. You didn't see grandparents raising their grandchildren, but we're seeing it more and more. Why? because families are under attack and families have uh, broken apart. And so at a certain stage of life, which you normally would have expected, that's not where you are right now. You see, God bless you for what you're doing, but it isn't what you envisioned. But may I submit to you that what you're doing is a good work? May I submit to you that what you're doing is a valuable work? May I uh, submit to you that there's no higher calling than what you're doing as modeling? what it means to be a man who follows Christ and who loves his family, loves his wife, loves his children, loves his grandchildren, and they're watching you every day of your life. Um, this is what God has called us to do. Uh, the point man in a, in a military situation is the guy who is leading a small patrol. He's assigned to that leadership position. Uh, how well he fulfills his role oftentimes depends on what happens to his men. If, if, if he is alert, if he's alive, if he can sense things before he sees them, you see, that's, that's all about leadership. Well, in this war on the family, we are leading our, not a small patrol of men, we're leading our, our wives and our children. If you have grandchildren, same thing. Uh, it's, it's a critical role. Um, uh, it, it is a war, and, and it is a battle. And know this, when you get serious about Christ, and I'm just sort of rehashing what we've been over the last four weeks. When a man gets serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. And he's going to come after you, and he's going to try and neutralize you, and he's going to try and keep you from being effective as a leader. Um, I mentioned, I think in here, that when I was doing my dissertation, you've got to, they put you through all these academic hoops. And I was writing on leadership, okay? And my advisor said, well, you're gonna have to define what a leader is, okay? And he goes, no, no, you don't come up with your own definition. You've got to go find published definitions. And I mentioned to you, I found 165 published definitions of a leader, and every one of them were excellent. 
Every one of them were outstanding because they hit leadership from a little different angle than the previous definition or the one coming after. And they were all full of insight. All 165 were incredibly insightful, but the best one, hands down, of all 165 came from Dr. Howard Hendricks. And Hendricks said this, a leader is someone who leads. That's brilliant. Is it not brilliant? You're not a leader because you have a title. You've seen guys with titles. You've worked for guys with titles who couldn't lead anyone to show them the right restroom for their gender. But they had a title. But they didn't know anything about leadership. Or they had an academic degree. But academic degrees don't make you a leader. But in our culture, we think if you went to an Ivy League school and then you got a master's at another Ivy League school or you went to law school at an Ivy League school or you got a PhD, you're qualified to lead the world. And you're not qualified for anything except the fact that apparently you can pass some tests and read a few books. But that doesn't make you a leader. It just means you know how to function in the academic world. That's all that means. It doesn't mean anything about an ability to lead. I would like to say more, but I put the brakes on my mouth. It's just the way it is. It's true in, in politics. It's true in business. It's true in every... You're only a leader if you lead. You're, a leader does the next thing that needs to be done. A leader does the right thing. A leader does the hard thing. That's leadership. That's leadership. Uh, King, is it okay if I just give a little... Sure. King was telling me his, he, he, his father... Uh, went to be with the Lord last week. Dad, I believe he said 93 years old and had been in great health and just suddenly, within a short period of time, uh, health failed. Uh, was about to celebrate, I believe, 63 years of marriage? 65. They were planning the anniversary and now he's with the Lord. King uh, was honored to speak to 800 people who gathered now, that tells you something about his father and about his father's character, that 800 people would show up. And we were just talking briefly, and King was telling me all the things. He, he found out so many things that people told him about his dad that he never knew. Great accomplishments, but his dad just never got around to mentioning them. Like one in a bronze star. You see? Because he wasn't about honoring himself, he was about serving others, you see. Now, that's a life well lived. That's the real deal. That's the real deal. That's not manufactured. That's not spin. You don't hire a PR firm to put something like together. Testimonies came from people's hearts who had been touched by him personally. Now, see, that's how a man's supposed to live. It's a high bar and it's a high standard. But Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. Okay? Now, tonight, the issue we're going to deal with, and I got to tell you, I was a little concerned about tonight. Because um, 
What we're going to talk about tonight, I actually dealt with for three sessions in our fall study on manna. And I was telling Mary last night, she said, so what are you teaching tomorrow night? And I told her, she said, oh, didn't you teach three times on that? And I said, yeah. She said, well, that'll be interesting. And I said, it will be. Um, and the immediate thought was, at least at first was, well, gosh, um, we just went over this. We went over it three times. But we're going to go over it again, and I'm going to tell you why. Because none of us have mastered it. And it is so critical. Um, when I wrote Point Man and I came to this chapter, am I not mistaken? Let me, let me just take a quick look here. Because this was 25 years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, I have chapter 5 which is called Anorexic Men and Their Bulimic Cousins. And it was a page and a half chapter. And what I told these guys in this page and a half chapter was, I said this, I said, I need to shoot, I remember writing this, I need to shoot straight with you. There's a good chance I'm going to lose you either in this chapter or the next. I was up until 2 a.m. last night trying to figure out how I could keep that from happening. Uh, Mary asked me if anything was bothering me. I told her my problem. I told her I was trying to come up with a solution to keep people reading this section and not drop off or skip it. She said, why don't you just tell them about it up front? So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm telling you about it up front. The, two, the reason this chapter and the next are so critical is that without the biblical principles they contain, you can never be a spiritual leader in your home. Never. Um, so what's the content? Uh, the content is basically out of Matthew 4, 4, where Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Um, when we talked about manna, we talked about that verse. You see, here's what happens. Uh, when we come into this world, we are born physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. At a certain point, the Spirit of God draws us to Christ. We hear the gospel. Our eyes are open and we respond and we trust in Christ alone for salvation. Uh, our hearts are regenerated. We're given eternal life. And uh, there's a massive change that occurs. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. You have a new heart. You have new vision. You have new sight. Because 1 Corinthians 2 says, before you're a Christian, the natural man can't discern, they can't understand the things of God, for they, the things of God are spiritually understood. But when I am born again, as Jesus described it in John 3 to Nicodemus, when I am born again, and I'm not only physically alive, but spiritually alive, now my heart is alive, uh, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. Yeah, but now my eyes have been opened like the blind man that Jesus touched his eyes and now he could see, the man in John 9. You see? So now I can see things I couldn't see before. Now I'm a follower of Christ. Now I'm a new creature. Now I have a new perspective on life that I didn't have prior coming to knowing Christ. Now I've got a new value system and things that weren't important to me are now suddenly important to me. I want to follow the Lord. I gotta, I've been changed from the inside out. And I'm going to start this process of growth. Now, uh, how many of you guys had breakfast this morning? 
Let's see your hands. Okay. How many of you guys had lunch? All right. How many of you guys had a snack in between breakfast and lunch? Okay. Come on. Don't give me that. All right. How many of you guys have eaten at least three times today? Okay. Why? Because you got work to do. You got to function. And if you don't eat, if you don't nurture your body at a certain point, you're going to drop off and you don't have any energy and you don't have any juice to do what you got to do. And sometimes we're busy and shoot, I never ate anything. So you, you grab some protein or something, you know, just to kind of so that you can function. The same thing holds true spiritually. Uh, what did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone. Well, you got to have bread, but he shall also live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So when I am born again, when I come to know Christ, now not only do I have to fuel and feed my physical body as I did before, but now I have to feed and fuel my spiritual soul. I have to. Why is that? Because man shall not live by bread alone. This is where the term, this is where I came up with this concept of anorexic men. Now, if you're in, generally speaking, in my age range, give or take 20 years, you probably uh, remember when Karen Carpenter died. And I, if, if I'm repeating some stuff from in the fall, so be it. Um, I had never in my life heard of anorexia nervosa until Karen Carpenter died. Very gifted singer with her brother, the Carpenters, okay. Uh, and then one day, out of nowhere, it's on the front page of the paper, she died. What do you mean she died? What was she, 32 years old, 33? What'd she die? What happened to her? She get hit by a car? No, she starved to death in America. She had, and this big, it was, it was anorexia nervosa. I remember reading it, I couldn't even pronounce it. I'd never heard of it. She was the first one that we knew of. Uh, it's, it's, it's an eating disorder that primarily strikes young women. And you would look at her and say she's attractive and, you know, looks, looks, looks fine, looks great. But for some emotional reason, this young gal looks in the mirror and she sees herself, not as others see her, but sees herself as grossly, grossly overweight, has issues with her appearance. So many young women in our culture, because we put such pressure on young women, such pressure on young women to be perfection. And that's just not right, is it? It's just not right. So I have read recently, you got girls now in fifth grade dealing with anorexic issues. They're just little girls. But see, the world just keeps pushing in on them. You gotta be perfect physically. So what happens is, what happens is, they just quit eating. And some of you guys have seen the tragedy this firsthand with, with daughters or with granddaughters or a niece, perhaps. It is a, it is a horrific thing. You've got young girls that look like they've come out of Auschwitz. And I'm not exaggerating. It is heartbreaking. This is what happened to Karen Carpenter. They refuse to eat their body becomes sick and weak and malnourished, and they can eventually die. 
This can happen to Christian men in the spiritual realm. What did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, we, we talked about point man. You, you take a, uh, a soldier in battle, okay? You recall, was it the first Gulf War when Schwarzkopf was leading our armies? And I mean, we just, we just ran over those guys. And do you remember the footage that you'd see of those guys in Saddam Hussein's army who had been in the foxholes for two weeks, three weeks, and had been abandoned? And they had no rations and they had no food. And they're coming out of those foxholes doing this and bowing. And I mean, those guys, their wills were broken before the Americans ever showed up because they had not had any nourishment. And if you are not nourished, you can't fight. They were starving, you see. I read somewhere that for every man, we talk about supply lines in the military, Adam, and, and I couldn't, I, I tried to look it up, I couldn't find it. But I'm ballparking this, and this is a minimal number, that for every guy on the front lines, you've got at least nine. And what I want to really say, but I can't prove it, is you've got 24 other soldiers in supply lines making sure he's got what he needs on the front line. I'm almost sure it's in the 20s. That's what it takes to equip those guys on the front line with the right, with the right shoes, with the right socks, with the right... Uh, equipment, with the right ammunition, with the guns, with the food, with, with medical supplies. It take, but if a soldier has not been fed, a soldier cannot fight. Now, in the Christian world, in, in the spiritual realm as a husband and father, if, if I want to lead my family in this battle, if I want to have an influence, if I want to lead them for Christ, I must be well fed. I cannot be anorexic. I uh, mentioned prior, and forgive me for keep going back to three months ago, but I keep doing it. Uh, I, I found a quote from George Gallup when I was writing Point Man. And George Gallup, the original George Gallup, was a committed Bible-believing Christian, uh, built the big polling company. He had, he had done a, a very exhaustive study of evangelical Christians in America, and he found out it, it, to use his term, he said, I found out that most Christian people revere the Bible, but they never read the Bible. Now, that's interesting. Because Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is here. So, you see, spiritually speaking, the Bible contains my vitamins, my minerals, my nutrients, my uh, AEC, chromium, potassium, selenium, uh, it's organic. It's, uh, Deuteronomy 32 says it's not an idle word for you. It is your life. It's your life. Uh, an anorexic Christian man is a man who respects the word of God. He is a man who honors the word of God. He is a man that has more than one Bible in his home. But he is a man who is very, very busy, who although he reveres the word of God, he does not read the word of God. And you're dead if you're not reading the word of God in terms of your effectiveness as a spiritual leader. If you are not well nourished from the scripture, how in the world 
can you lead the charge in your family? How in the world can you have an, a spiritual influence if you are not taking in the nourishment of the word of God? How can you stand against personal temptation? How can you break habitual sin? How can you offer forgiveness when you were wronged? How can you, how can you do anything if you have no spiritual nourishment? Doesn't matter what you believe about the Bible, but if you're not feeding, you will be weak, you will be sick, you will be emaciated, you will be malnourished, and you will be defeated. You see, oh, but I've had this experience. There is no experience that tops the power of the Word of God. There is no experience. The most spiritual thing you can ever do in the Christian life is obey the Word of God. And the only way that we obey the word of God is to know the word of God, to meditate, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I got all this false information. I got all this false propaganda. I've been educated in it. I've been taught it. There is a world system of academia. There, there are... Uh, it is anti-God, it is anti-truth, it is anti-supernatural revelation. And this is what I've been steeped in. This is the air we breathe. How in the world do I ever counter that? I'm to be not, not conformed, but be, to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. So far, am I making any sense? Okay. That can't be done without the Bible. Uh, Ezra. You say Ezra. Yes, Ezra. Book of Ezra. Chapter 7, verse 10. Uh, if you are in Psalms, go to the left. If you're in First Chronicles, go right. You're getting warm. If you're in Nehemiah, it's the book before. Okay. Ezra 7.10. The people had been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. Now they were going to return after 70 years to their nation. All right? And so now they're starting to do things that had not been done. They were going to celebrate Passover that hadn't been done. They were in a foreign land. Now they're back home. Uh, it's a day of small beginnings. The temple had been destroyed. Uh, it was bittersweet. But they're back. And Ezra, um, the priest and the scribe, um, it says this about Ezra in chapter 7, verse 10. And the context is, he's leaving Babylon, he's going to Jerusalem. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, watch this, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, I want to say to you, that's the job of a Christian father and husband. That's it. You're the family pastor. You're responsible for your wife and for your kids. Okay? You say, man, Steve, that's kind of intimidating because my wife knows so much more about the Bible than I do. Well, that's because you have a job. I mean, a lot of times our wives are stay-at-home moms. That's great. But they have time you don't have. I mean, I, I mean, is it not true? A lot of wives have a lot of time to go to a lot of Bible studies. And you, and, and you don't have that kind of time to go to Bible study. 
Not like she does. And, and you say, well, she's been studying the Bible a lot more than I have. Well, okay, fine. Uh, it doesn't ma- it's not how much of the Bible you know, it's how much of the Bible you obey. <coughs> you see, there's another uh, thing you have to be careful of. Anorexia is revering the Bible, but never reading it. The other thing you've got to be careful of is spiritual bulimia. Uh, bulimia. This is another eating disorder that, uh, again, hits primarily young women. And this is what's called, what is called the binge and purge syndrome. It's where you binge, a woman will binge on food, eat a lot of food, and then they excuse themselves and go into the bathroom and they stick their finger down their throat and they vomit it up. Uh, this is how I've lost my weight. Uh, I'm actually pretty high on this thing. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, the problem with bulimia is this. And again, you can mess up your body big time. Why? Because you chew it, you, di- you, you swallow it, but you never give your body a chance to digest it. Therefore, the nutrients are lost. And once again, you're going to get sick and you're going to get weak and you're going to get malnourished because you got nothing in your system. That's called bulimia. Uh, you know how a guy is spiritual bulimic? James said, don't just be hearers of the word, but be what? Doers. Doers. The purpose of reading the Bible and the purpose of Bible study is not just to gain information. That's not the purpose. The purpose of Bible study is to know God and to obey God and to walk in his ways. The, 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 the purpose of Bible study is to take the truth, it's to absorb the truth, and it is for the truth to come out in my behavior and in my thinking and in my leadership. Is this making sense? Sure it is. It's making all kinds of sense. We've all seen men who um, study the scripture, but they don't apply the scripture. They they are walking encyclopedias of truth, but they're hell to live with. Because it hasn't made a difference in their attitudes. It hasn't made a difference in their homes. It hasn't made a a difference in their family. There's not a a kindness. There's not a sweetness. There's not an atmosphere of grace and forgiveness. Although they know massive amounts of the Bible, it's never transformed them. It's never come out. It's never been applied. And that's how you screw up kids. You see, it's just to be a big old Bible thumper. Who's always mad and angry about something. Where's the peace? Where's the joy? Where's the kindness? You're not going to get it if the word of God is not applied. If you just hear it and you don't do it, well, you, so you hear a good sermon on Sunday you hear a teaching on the radio. Oh, man, that was good. And then you pull your car over and you just just upchuck. That's bulimia. Notice Ezra. I want you to notice that Ezra was neither an anorexic or a bulimic. He set his heart to study the law, the word of God, and to practice it. That's the name of the game. Practice. Why do we keep practicing? Because we never quite get it right. We keep working at it. We just keep working at it. 
We just keep working. We're not to become weary in well-doing. You see? Because growth in the Christian life tends to be, it tends to be slow. Uh, You see, this is why when I wrote that chapter, I was afraid of losing guys. Because if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it. You've got to be in the scriptures. 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 And we tend to just start tuning it out. But I'm going to tell you something. This is so important that when I did chapter 5, take 2, I actually said that... Earlier in the book, I said Satan has two strategies. One, to alienate and sever the relationship you enjoy with your wife. Secondly, alienate and sever the relationship you enjoy with your kids. But now I want to give you a third one. And the third strategy that I think the enemy has is that, well, let me just read it because I want to get it right. Um, the third strategy that the enemy has, uh, and I can't find it. Uh, I know what it is. What the jump? I can read it. I mean, I wrote it. Why can't I? I'm getting old, guys. It's breaking down. The mind is going quickly. Uh, it's great being here in Idaho with you guys. It's very special to me. Uh, here's the third strategy. Satan wants to alienate and sever a Christian man from the spiritual discipline of reading and applying the Word of God to his life. How's that? So what's the next thing he wants to do? He wants to alienate and then sever me from the discipline of reading, meditating, and applying the Word of God to my life. In other words, he wants me to think that I can get along without Scripture for a sustained length of time. When I did the book Finishing Strong, I alluded to a study that Dr. Hendricks did with 246 pastors, uh, uh, worship leaders, missionaries, youth pastors. He interviewed 246 pastors, guys in ministry. Why did he interview them? Because within 24 months of each other, they had all gotten trapped in sexual immorality. Now, I, I went to seminary with some of these guys. None of them intended for this to happen in their life. But, the, but they all got ambushed by, by the enemy. Never intended it, never wanted this to happen. They loved Christ. They loved the word of God. But it happened to them. Dr. Hendricks interviewed 246 of these men. And he found uh, actually four or five traits in their lives. But the first trait that came out as he started asking them what had changed, what had happened in their lives, here's the first thing he said. He found that all the 246 of them no longer had a consistent personal time in the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? Now they used to, but no longer did they. And they'd been in ministry long enough that they could just kinda get by because they'd been in it a long time. 
They had a lot of years of study. They had a lot of stuff upstairs. And instead of making the Word of God a priority in their daily schedule, uh, they just started coasting. You know, sometimes you get some expertise in an area, and you can, I mean, if you need, you know, if you need to and you're in a bind, that's helpful because you got a lot of stuff built up. you got a lot of capital in the bank. But you see, this is how they started living. They got real, real busy. They got, they, they just got overwhelmed with, can you do this? 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 And what happened was the very most important thing got squeezed out. And you can get by with that for a while. Um, George Mueller was the man who lived in the 1800s who had the remarkable orphanages in Bristol, England. Uh, you can still go to Bristol. Brian, you've been there. And, and see, they still have the buildings where he housed the 2,000 orphans. And he was the man who would not send out fundraising appeals. He just believed that he would let the Lord know what the needs were and God would bring in according to his promises. And he never made a financial appeal, yet for 60 years, God took care of these orphans. And sometimes, oftentimes, at the last minute. But George Mueller uh, was a man of the word. How do you, how do you, how do you trust God for 2,000 kids a day that you've got to feed and clothe and you've got two pounds in the bank? That's about what, five, six bucks? And you think you got worries. How do, you, how, how do you manage that? Well, you better be in the Word of God. Listen to what Mueller said, and I'm really, really hoping I can find the quote. And here it is. May I read this to you? Mueller said this. And he's talking about what he, what he calls Christian meditation. You know, when in Joshua, the Lord said to Joshua, just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. He was taking over the leadership. Uh, These words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall meditate on them both day and night. What does that mean? Well, it means that you kind of got it on the back burner. You don't have it on the front burner because you got a job and you got to pay attention to your work and you got stuff to do. And the Lord knows that. We're to work hard. We're to work to the glory of God. Uh, whatever you do, Colossians 3 says, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ, as the Lord Christ whom you serve. So we got to be focused at work and we got to be attentive and okay. But on the back burner, just kind of simmering, you got scripture. You see? At least that's kind of how I see it. And in a moment where maybe you're faced with a dilemma or something, God calls up that simmering stew of Scripture. He might give you just a little word of wisdom. Or, Okay, listen to what Euler says. He said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to make my soul happy in the Lord. I find this is interesting because I've read this guy's autobiography, which is this thick, and he kept meticulous records, and the financial pressure that was on this man was staggering. Staggering. To keep that ministry going 
when he would not make broad financial appeals. And to trust God that in the mail would come what they needed that day to buy oatmeal for 2,000 kids. And it would come in. But the pressure. So, so with, that pain, with that backdrop, and he really never had a surplus. Hardly ever did he have a surplus. And if they ever had a surplus, the, the, the whole heating system went down and they had to replace it. Oh, he just happened to have the money there. Okay? So with that context, listen to this again. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Why? Because I'm under such pressure and stress. Doesn't that make sense? You ever get under financial stress? Uh, wouldn't it be nice to have your soul happy in the Lord? Oh, yeah, it would. Uh-huh. Okay, well, listen to what this guy said. The first thing to be considered about each day was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be, watch this, nourished. Nourished. Now, I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that while meditating, thinking on the Scripture, my heart might be brought into experiential communion with the Lord. I began, therefore, to meditate on the New Testament from the beginning, early in the morning, watch this, for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. There you go. There you go. I mean, this is, this is basic stuff. Now, you say, I'm not a morning guy. You do better at night? Okay. Some guys are what I call night hawks. My wife's a night hawk. My wife flies through the halls of our home at 3 a.m. <laughs> Mary sends out emails at 3.30 a.m. She's a night hawk. <clears throat> That's how she is. Al Mohler, who's the president of the Southern Seminary, he's written some great stuff. He writes at night after midnight because there's nobody around. The phone's not ringing, the fax machine. He just, he's just by himself. He's got classical music on the radio. And for some reason, he, his juices, he gets going about 11 p.m. He's a night hawk. Churchill was a night hawk. Churchill would write till about 4 a.m. Have a big dinner, have a lot of people over, they'd all go to bed. He knocks back a couple of shots, and he's going to work all night. A NyQuil, I think he took. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> you might be a Nighthawk. You say, I'm not a morning guy. Hey, you're not a morning guy. God, God put the rhythms of your life together. The point is, you got to have a time, whatever's good for you, where you're feeding on the Word of God. It's, there's just no getting around this thing. Um, you have to make a plan for spiritual growth. You have to. Um, and I got to check my time here. Okay. There's a phrase in Isaiah 61, verse 3, and it says this And they shall be called oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness. I always considered my dad to be an oak of righteousness. Not a perfection, but righteousness. Uh, I watched my dad weather a lot of storms over the years. Died at 85. Um, I think I had the kind of dad that King had. 
just uh, a guy who, who loved Christ, loved his wife, loved his kids, grandkids. Um, I remember I remember when things were going really well when I was in high school. My dad with his partners built 400 units, 400 apartment buildings, units. And uh, had the nice house and the Cadillac and, you know, scope all going pretty well. I remember when my dad had to file bankruptcy. And uh, actually lost the house. Lost the Cadillac. I mean, lost everything. I watched him go through a lot of adversity. That's not easy on a man. Um, that was hard on him. Had to be hard on him. But there was something my dad never wavered from. Uh, flip over to Psalm 1, if you would. See, some of you guys are in a tough spot. You're in a difficult uh, season of life. There's a lot of adversity. Not a lot of prosperity, but a lot of adversity. Seems like every day is just another wave of bad news that's coming in. You just keep getting knocked down. You can't seem to get off back on your feet. It's just, it's just a brutal time. You're, you're in the school of disappointment. Uh, my, my dad was in that for I'm going to say three, four, five years. He just couldn't get his business back on track. It was a very, very hard time. But there was something that my dad never altered from. If you read uh, Psalm 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, this is what we get every day in our lives when you uh, go to websites, it's what you get when you turn on the radio. It's what when you, it's when you turn on news, when you get talk radio, when you're checking the world around you. And sometimes when you check the world around you within 10 minutes, are you not just overwhelmed and on the edge of despair? You look at this and you say, they're taking our nation away from us. And then you read the scripture and you understand they're not taking it, but we've been given over. It's not being taken away, we've been given over. And then you get the truth of the Word of God. Without the Word of God, how do you have any peace right now? When it is being stolen in front of our faces. How do you have any peace? How do you have any joy? How do you have any hope for the future? You're not going to have any apart from the Word of God. Watch this. So he doesn't listen to that. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. It's always on the back burner. It's always accessible, you see, as you go through your day. Uh, he will be, watch this, he will be like a tree. Oh, that's interesting. He'll be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Why? Because the roots go down deep. I've told you about my dad. My dad had a, uh, a daily discipline and his inner alarm would go off, 5.30, 5.45. He'd get up, he'd make his coffee, he'd get his Bible, and he'd go sit down and spend the first hour in the scriptures. Prosperity, that's what he'd do. Adversity, that's what he would do. Big house, that's what he would do. No house, that's what he would do. Cadillac, that's what he would do. Volkswagen, that's what he would do. Didn't matter. That's how my dad lived his life. 
He'd get in that chair with the Word of God and it would center him. It would, just like a chiropractor, kind of go, <laughs> it'd make him right. Because you see, when you read this, when you read the scriptures, first of all, it reminds you who's in control of the world. Secondly, it reminds you of who's in control of your life. Uh, it reminds you of what is right. It reminds you that God blesses obedience. It reminds you that God forgives disobedience. It, it, what it does is it just sets you straight with the truth. You see. That's why I, I, I've always thought of my dad as an oak of righteousness, because no matter what came, I mean, there was a stability there and he was anchored and he wasn't going anywhere. He was an oak. Oaks don't get to be oaks because life's easy. They get to be oaks because life is hard and the roots go down deep into the scriptures from a Christian perspective. The longest psalm in the Bible, the Psalm 119. Flip over there with me, if you would. And we'll spend the next four hours just highlighting this. The longest psalm in the Bible is Psalm 119. Uh, psalm 119, essentially, every verse is about the Word of God. Pretty much. There might be one or two lines that are an exception, perhaps. But you can say 99.9% .9 of Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, is all about, it's all about the Word of God. The whole thing. Psalm 119 contains 176 verses and 315 lines. And every aspect of it is about the Word of God. Uh, it'll speak of different synonyms of the Word of God. It'll use the term law. It's used 25 times. It'll use the term word. It'll use the term uh, word is used 39 times. Uh, the term judgments is used 23 times. The, the term testimony is used 22 times. Commandments used 22 times. Precepts, 21 times. Way, this is the way, 11 times. In other words, it's all about every aspect of life. It's what the Word of God does for me. You see. Now, the reason this is important, uh, I just find it interesting that the longest psalm in the Bible is all about the Bible. It's about the power of the Word. It's about what the Word does for us. Every verse, every line will tell you of a benefit of having your roots down deep in the Word of God on a consistent basis. You're take, what does a tree do with the roots? They're taking in nourishment through the roots. Taking in nourishment. Nourishment through the root system. Trees, strong trees are not anorexic. They are taking in nourishment on a daily basis, just as I must do it in the Christian life. Or I can't do the work that God has called me to do. So William Wilberforce, uh, Wilberforce was the man, a very wealthy young man, uh, came to know Christ in his early 20s, affluent, had a seat in Parliament at the age of 23. Uh, before he knew Christ, loved to gamble, excessive amounts of money because he was, just, he was just insanely wealthy. It wasn't an issue for him. But Christ got a hold of him 
And, and suddenly he began to be aware of some things and he decided he was going to devote his life to doing two things. Number one, to defeat slavery in the British Empire. And number two, to reform the manners, M-A-N-N-E-R-S, the manners of the British Empire. But see, he didn't mean knowing how to pick up the right fork at a dinner party. He meant fighting violence, fighting anarchy, fighting uh, slavery, uh, fighting the court system where you could be sent to the gallows as a nine-year-old kid because you took an apple. There was incredible injustice. He wanted to reform the entire culture. And he did. He did. Os Guinness says he was the most significant social reformer in the history of the world. Of the world. And he came to know Christ. And when he came to know Christ, he thought, I want my life to count. He went to see the pastor, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, because he felt like the thing he could do to make a biggest difference with his life would be to become a pastor. And Newton said, you don't become a pastor, you stay in parliament. Because God has given you a role that few men ever have, and you can use it for the glory of God. There was such pressure. There was such stress. He had the whole, he had, he had the entire British Empire against him because they were built on slavery. It was the economic engine. And he stood against it. The persecution, the sarcasm, the spiritual battles he would fight at lunchtime to get out from under the load of the office and the debates and the horrific letters and the threats to his life. He was near Hyde Park and he would walk the length of Hyde Park, turn around and walk back. And he discovered that with Psalm 119, well, what he began to do, he began to read Psalm 119, and by the time he would get halfway to the end, he would get to the end, he was halfway through the psalm, so then he would come back, and by the time he was finished, he had finished his walk and finished Psalm 119. It got to a point he didn't need his Bible because he memorized Psalm 119. And that accompanied him on his daily walk. <coughs> David Livingston, the great missionary, who opened up what they call darkest Africa. He went where no other man would go in Africa. David Livingston would walk thousands of miles a year in Africa to reach tribes that no white man would dare go talk to because they were afraid of him. And Livingston would walk right in there. And Livingston, when he was nine years old, memorized Psalm 119. And he would walk in to a village of cannibals. He was quoting Psalm 119 every step of the way. Isn't that something? And we have trouble finding five minutes. I'm going to tell you something, guys. You've got to find the time. And you've got to build this into your life. Let me give you three tips on how to do it. Now, here's the deal. Don't, don't go crazy on this. If you haven't been doing it, and say, Steve, you're making me feel guilty, good. <laughs> Every medical doctor I have ever visited has made me feel guilty. And they don't think twice about it. They just tell me the truth. And every once in a while, I listen. Um, sometimes it takes me a long time, but anyway. They keep telling me the truth, and I know what they're saying is right. If, um, and I want to make sure, just give me a second here. Just, just give me a second, if you would.
Yeah. Um. Uh, I was pausing, and a lot of times it's called a pregnant pause, and it means something really significant is about to come. Uh, I lost my place. That's really what that was about. And I've been doing that more and more lately. So, uh, anyway. Now let's back up. Let's see if I can remember where I was. I just did... Somebody help me here. Three tips. Thank you. I'm always thrilled when people pay attention. It's embarrassing when the teacher is not paying attention. Uh, let me give you three tips. In terms of getting started in the scripture, if you've never done it, that's okay. It's all right. You've never done it. So I'm going to do it every day. You're not going to do it every day. Don't set yourself up for failure. Uh, before you can run the White Rock Marathon, you've got to get a lap around the high school track, right? So make small goals. Uh, I would say shoot for three times a week. Uh, you go down to the aerobic center, and Dr. Cooper will tell you. It's in his book. I read his book. He said, and a lot of guys do aerobic seven days a week and all that, but he said in his book, if you just do an aerobic program, three times a week for 30 minutes and get your heart there. You know, that little point system he's got. If you do that, you're good. All right, why don't we apply that to the spiritual realm for right now? Okay? You say, well, seven's better. Yeah, seven's better, but three's better than nothing. So let's start with three. Okay? Uh, here's what you do. Number one, plan a time. Plan a time. What's a good time for you? Are you a morning guy? Morning good for you? Okay, good. Are you, a, are you an evening guy? Are you better at night? Great. Uh, is your, you say, well, my best time is lunch because I got time by my, okay, lunch. Doesn't matter. Just set a time that's good for you and the Lord will be there. He'll be there, okay? So whatever that time is, set it. Here's secondly, uh, um, plan a time. Secondly, plan a place. What's a good place for you? What's a good place for you to open your Bible? Uh, doesn't matter where it is, just what's good for you, and once again, the Lord will be there. The third thing I'd say is make a list. Make a list of things you don't want to forget to pray about. You know, you can put it on your phone or something. When I was in seminary, I had a professor, uh, and I'll never forget this. He told us that when he and his wife were married, and I imagine at this point in his life, he'd been married 35, 40 years. He said, uh, when they were married, someone gave them as a wedding present uh, what was called an empty book. It was a beautiful uh, bound book. All the pages were empty. And you could do anything you wanted with that book. Well, they decided, he and his wife, to make it their, their prayer journal. So they would take a blank page and they would put a line down the middle of it and on the left side they would write the request that they had and the date of the request. Uh, on the other side of the line, when God answered the prayer, they would write in the date of the answer and how God answered it. Uh, he told us 
that they've been doing that since they got married. And he said, now my wife and I, when we are faced with a crisis of some sort in our church or with our kids or family, and we're overwhelmed and we just are fighting off fear, wondering if God will come through, we look up on the bookshelf and there are 12 bound volumes of answered prayer. So make a list. And when the Lord answers, write it down. That'll help you. You say, well, what do I do? Well, uh, I've told you about the calendar that I use by reading four chapters that gets me through the scripture in a year. Four chapters a day. Uh, You email me at my website, and I'll send you one of those. Uh, Or you can get a one-year Bible. Just read through the Bible in a year. Man, I couldn't read through the Bible a year. Actually, you could. Have you ever done it? You ought to do it. Uh, You say, I I saw the movie. Oh, the book's better. (laughs) Or here's something else you can do. Uh, Just read the New Testament. You ever read the New Testament through? You start Matthew and read it all the way through. You know, take X amount of minutes and you start reading it. And then put a mark where you, okay, I'm done. I'll start in the morning. Just read the New Testament. Here's another thing. you And there's all kinds of things you can do. Uh, you, you say, man, you know, I, I, lo- I love the book of Ephesians. All right. Man, I wish I really knew what was in Ephesians. Well, why don't you read it ten times? Ten times? Yeah. Just read it ten times. Well, that's kind of overwhelming. Well, don't read it ten times all at once. <coughs> there's six chapters. So why don't you do this? You want to know Ephesians? Just read three chapters in the morning. And then... The next morning, read the next three, and you're through it. And then start over again and do it ten times. Are you going to know in a couple of months what's in Ephesians? Oh, yeah, you're going to know what's in Ephesians. And then you say, oh, man, well, you know, Philippians. I always love Philippians. Well, why don't you do it with Philippians? That's only got four chapters. Shoot, I mean, in three months, you could know Philippians and Ephesians pretty much hands down. You see? You can just do this any way you want to do it. But I will tell you this. The enemy doesn't want you to do anything remotely close to this. Because there's power in the word of God. The word of God gives you nourishment. The word of God is your sword. The word of God is your offensive weapon. And it is your defensive weapon. You can fight off blows with the scripture. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and able to divide between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The enemy does not want you in Scripture, but it is not an idle word. You cannot live without it. So let's go after it. Let's just go after it and make it a priority And ask the Lord to give us favor. And before you ever read, just pray this. Oh, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. And he'll do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. There are people who would love to read a Bible. They can't read. There are other people who would love to read a Bible, and they can read, but the Bible is not in their language. 
We don't have any of those issues. Some of us aren't readers. But we've got technology. We can actually download an app on our phone and someone will read it to us on our way to work. Someone will read it to us through our headphones as we're working out at the gym. What amazing access we have. Uh, Help us with this, Lord. We know the enemy would like to waylay us. But would you help us to grow? Would you help us to set some priorities so that we could become stronger men in the word and stronger men in our lives and stronger leaders with the help of the Holy Spirit? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.